This podcast is brought to you by Audio-Technica, celebrating over 50 years of audio excellence. Well known throughout the recording industry for their acclaimed 40 and 50 series studio microphones and professional M series headphones, Audio-Technica is proud to be the first choice of countless award-winning producers, engineers, and musicians. Learn more at audiotechnica.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. We go back to 2012 for this interview with Steve Albini. Albini surfaced on the music scene in the 80s with his excellently abrasive combo, Big Black, and later in bands such as Shellac. But along the line, more and more of his time was spent in the studio, and he eventually built Electrical Audio, one of the finest studios in Chicago. Among the records he's had a hand in are classics by Nirvana, The Pixies, The Stooges, PJ Harvey, The Breeders, and The Jesus Lizard. Many people deem Albini controversial, and want to pick away at the outspoken character they imagine him to be. I've called bullshit on that for years. He's just a really fucking great engineer. This interview is conducted at the Electrical Audio Studios in Chicago. Enjoy. Let's, let's get back. You know, cause the first time I interviewed you was, uh, I think, in 86. That makes sense. To San Francisco to that was one of the weirdest backstage scenarios I've ever I've ever had. <laughs> it was our our final our the Big Black farewell tour. We were supposed to be headlining all these places. Yeah. Like this is our final the first time we'd ever played in San Francisco. Yeah. Like we we're like and then out of nowhere, like uh, I realized that our backstage has been taken over by Jello Biafra and Lydia Lunch. I think I, I can't remember right. who it was, but they were like. There were like people had sort of taken over our backstage, and I actually had to leave. I had to leave because I couldn't bear like the there was just like this swirl of nattering conversation going on back there, and I couldn't bear it. And then I got uh, got hit with a little bit of Jane's addiction on the way out, but I managed to maintain my oh, ignorance. That, that, I didn't know who they even were. No one did. I got cornered by one of them backstage and they wanted to know if I'd seen the show I said, you know not really I didn't really hear that much and I said well what did you what did you think you know like that that should have been there should have been enough of a clue there when I said that I didn't see much of your band oh, that should have been enough of a clue not to ask me what I thought and I came up with what I thought was probably the uh the best answer because I don't know if it was Perry no. Farrell or uh somebody else in the band but I didn't think he would be offended by it <laughs> and I felt like I could be genuine without, you know, betraying my intellectual rigor or whatever. Uh, I said I'd, I'd never actually heard Rush, but that's what, what I always imagined Rush would sound like. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I probably confused the hell out of him. Yeah, I, I, don't think that, I don't think he was offended. That's so, awesome. I, uh, so mission accomplished, you know. That's good. Um, it seemed like there was always more interesting stuff coming out of San Francisco. Like there were there was stuff, yeah, Slovenly and yeah. Factrix and yeah. um, you know Tuxedo Moon and MX80 and like it seemed yeah. like there was an awful lot more bands that I liked in San Francisco. Yeah. Even the punk bands, you know, like Flipper and Crime and all, like like Avengers. I like yeah, I like yeah. all the San Francisco bands to yeah. me were quality. 
And I don't remember a fucking thing coming out of L.A. that, that I gave a shit about. I really don't. I, I mean, Flipside Flip magazine always had, there was like 30 pages of local shit going on. And I would, I would flip through it and I'd be like, I don't give a shit about this. I don't give a shit yeah. about this. I don't give a shit about Skateboarding? Really? Skateboarding? <laughs> when did that become a thing? Skateboarding? Like, is yeah. yo-yo tricks next? You know? <laughs> Wand darts. Yeah. Slinkies. <laughs> Check out my wicked slinky hat. It's, a, it's another version of the hacky sack at the dead show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I had no, I had, none of that shit resonated with me. Yeah. I felt like I was totally alien from it and it didn't have, you know, it made, it meant nothing to me. I mean, no, like your first uh, EP was, Big Black EP was a four track cassette. It wasn't a cassette. It was a real to real four track. Okay. Yeah, oh, 30, yeah, yeah. I borrowed a 3340 from a guy named uh, Sam Fishkin, who's still an engineer and still makes records yeah. in town here. I borrowed a four track from him, and I did the bulk of the recording on that. How did you first kind of lean towards doing that stuff yourself? Um, if you don't have a band, but you have time on your hands, you can put it around and do stuff on your own. Yeah. I had been in a band uh, that had recorded a four track demo yeah. and they had entrusted me with the recording of it because I had done it before. Like I had done four track and recording for my friends bands back in Montana and for my band and a couple of other bands in Chicago, I had done demo recording for and stuff. So they entrusted me with doing the recording for that. And in doing that, I sort of rekindled an interest in it. Uh, and then when I got kicked out of that band, I was like, well, fuck it, I'll just record my own record, you know? Yeah. So, I thought the band that was supposed to record with Martin Hand. They something. did. There was, yeah. a, there was a band called Stations, mm -hmm. and they they had a weird profile in Chicago. Like, they they were kind of on the artier end of the spectrum. I don't, I, th I think I was a, I was maybe like one tick too young to mesh with their aesthetic completely. Mm -hmm. Amanda also, like, a little bit too... Um, interested in doing my own thing. Yeah. Like, I think I had, I think I was not, I wasn't, I wasn't very adult at that point. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I probably couldn't have sublimated my uh, desires into a band identity very well. Yeah. So. Being dismissed from that band sort of led to you writing a reel to reel and tracking things on your Yeah, own. basically. It was yeah. like, well, I don't have a band. Uh, I had been in a previous, like a like a, a part-time band prior to that, which never did anything but yeah. did a little bit of demo recording and never, never I think we played one show. <laughs> uh, but I had this itch to be in a band, but I just wasn't very good at it, apparently. So uh, <laughs> I sort of capitulated for the moment and yeah. recorded a demo of, of myself doing the kind of music that I was interested in doing. My thinking was that I would use that demo as a calling card to get other people interested in playing in a band, right. and then I would eventually put a band together. It worked out that way, but it worked out that mm -hmm. way in a kind of a circuitous fashion. Like, I actually had to release a record before I could get <laughs> other people interested in playing yeah. in a band. And then when you did the, the next record, you had Jeff on bass. And yeah. From and the very, like, the first time we played Santiago. live, it was Jeff and Santiago and me. Yeah. And then, uh, and we played like that until Dave Riley joined the band, which was a, a solid year and a half, two years. Yeah. And we played it kind of a lot. Like, I remember, I remember, like, we played more often than I thought was go we were going to. We played in town <laughs> once a month easily, maybe twice a month in some, on a good month. And then we played out of town a lot, kind of a lot yeah. as well. And that was using the drum machine. Yeah. But, the, but I know, like, on, was it Bulldozer? Wasn't that... 
Wasn't that Bulldozer, we had, yeah, we had yeah. a guy named Pat Byrne, who at the time was the drummer in Urge Overkill. Mm-hmm. And he was like a super nice guy, very easygoing. He had expressed an interest in it. He was like, oh, man, I really like that big black stuff. I'd really like to play along with that. And he was like, yeah, I, I play along to that record in my basement. That's like, what he said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. I, yeah. I didn't imagine anybody would, it didn't seem like, this didn't seem like rock out material. But yeah. <laughs> um, so we set up a recording session. We had one rehearsal with Pat oh playing God. drums uh, along with this, the new material. Yeah. And the rest of it, like I think I made, gave him a cassette tape with some of the songs on it. We had one rehearsal with Pat and we went into the studio pretty unprepared. But I think, uh, I mean, he adapted really, really well. And uh, I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed doing that session a lot. But you continued to play shows with a drum machine. Yeah, it just didn't seem like, it seemed like it was way too cumbersome to try to incorporate another person. Like, when you're in a three-piece band, if one guy gets the other two guys' attention and says something, then it's settled. You know, like, you can, (laughs) like, you can decide to play a different song in the song order. You can decide to extend something. You can, you have... It's not really improvisational, but you have flexibility in almost every decision, yeah. you know. And with more people than that involved, there's a sort of a bucket brigade. You have to get the information to everybody and yeah. get everybody's acquiescence, and, and then you can do something. But with three people, it's, you know, you can, you're very, very nimble, you know. Yeah. Uh, I really like the format of having just three people in the band, and I didn't, it didn't bother me having a drum machine yeah. playing live. I mean, I think that's something that people don't, yeah, after having seen you guys play with the drum machine, that thing was pummeling. Well, uh, it was a big a part of the band, and we yeah. we uh, we tended to travel with a sound man who was one of our friends and knew the score. Like yeah. if if you just show up at a club <laughs> and the sound man isn't a, isn't familiar with you, they would tend to make the drum machine less significant than yeah. it was supposed to be. There was a guy named Chicago in Chicago named Steve Bjorkland, mm-hmm. who um, was in the band Strike Under. And then he left town for a while, and he came back and started a band called uh, Breaking Circus that was a two-piece band with a drum machine. I don't remember how he did it, but he got a hold of a drumulator. That was the drum machine that he was going to base his band around. Was this? Drum. And he let me borrow his drumulator for a couple of big black recording sessions. Yeah. And I had to get one as soon as I like had a chance to play with his. I had to get one because it was so much more flexible than the thing that we'd been using. You know, it sounded better. It had individual output. You could have your entire working vocabulary of songs mm-hmm. in it in, in residence. And then for a performing band with a drum machine, it was the ideal solution. Yeah. You know, it allowed a range of... There was enough flexibility that you could conduct, like, a whole show using just that drum machine. But you, you weren't overwhelmed by features and options. So on the sessions, like this, the session with Pat Byrne... Uh-huh. Where did you go to record and who you were working with? We, that, 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 that was the first session that we did with Ian Burgess. Mm-hmm. And Ian Burgess, I'd gotten introduced to Ian Burgess very shortly after the big black record came out. Jeff Pizzotti introduced me to him. Naked Reagan had just started working on Throb Throb with Ian. Mm-hmm. And they were really stoked about Ian. And, you know, he was, at the time, he was like the best friend of every band in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He was a, a real champion of a lot of these bands. He worked at a studio called Head and West. Um, which was a, a kind of a small suburban studio that had a secondary business doing cassette tape duplication <laughs> for like, yeah. um, you know, lectures and churches and shit like oh, that. Yeah. It was a very small, very dead studio environment. Didn't have much uh, by way of acoustic. Yeah. But for a band like us, where it was basically a couple of amplifiers and a drum machine, it was fine. Yeah. 
and Ian was great. Like just getting introduced to Ian, that by itself was worth worth the effort because he kind of took me under his wing and like showed me a bunch of stuff in the studio there. He eventually got hired by a Chicago recording company and he was a, an engineer during the week there just doing on-call stuff. And then on weekends, he would bring bands in. He rigged a deal with the guy that owns uh, that Chicago recording company. The recording studio was strictly a business for him. Right. And Ian proposed to him that all of these punk rock bands in Chicago... Uh, would make their records there over the weekends, which were dead time. And Ian swung a deal where he could get bands in there for the the whole of the weekend as a lockout for a fixed rate. And as soon as he did that, like he basically cornered the market in Chicago. Like yeah. every band in Chicago did record did a record with Ian during that period. Yeah. You know? And that was that was a very um, well equipped studio. It was a great like, studio. Yeah. yeah. Like there at, at one point they had three buildings. Yeah. A lot of the studios would just be like a voiceover booth with a multi-track right. machine and a console, but a lot of them would be like several of them were like full-featured big recording studios that you could yeah. conduct a whole session in. They had a beautiful Neve console in one of them. They had a a KDAC console that sounded pretty good in another one. Mm -hmm. And then they had a Flickinger that eventually got taken out and installed at Ian's studio in France. Right. Um, yeah, all the big black stuff was done either on the Neve or on the KDAC console, and all, very little of it was done on anything else. I don't think anything else. Yeah. I don't think we used any of the other stuff at CRC. What kind of things were you learning, you know, uh, about recording and, well, the, and stuff from the ends? But. A lot of it was, like, the technical side of it, you have to, is kind of grunt work. You have to learn how to do... Like like how the signal how signal flow works, you have to learn how to maintain your machines. You have to learn how to like calibrate your equipment and make sure that everything is working working properly. There's no you can't pick that up. You have to learn how to do that, right? And yeah. so I had to, a combination of being of teaching myself that sort of stuff and having Ian show me what I'd gotten wrong. Uh, <laughs> like I learned the technical side of it that way. But the the main thing that Ian had was that he had an attitude that whatever the band wanted to do, there was a reason for it. And he would indulge it, provided he could understand that reason. So if a band wanted to do like if a band said, I really want to sing this one with my head in the toilet bowl, he'd be like, fine, no problem. Uh, let me put a baggie on the microphone in case you dip it underwater. You know, so, something like that. Like, or uh, I want to take the drum machine and run it through a guitar amplifier, and then I want to have the guitar amplifier at the bottom of the stairs. And I want to have the, you know, put the mics at the top of the stairs, and then at some point during it, I want to run down the stairs screaming. And be yeah. like, okay, no problem. You know, and let's set it up. You know. Yeah. So that that kind of thing, just like he had a very open mind about from a procedural standpoint, like what was permissible. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a big influence on me. The other thing was like his aesthetic as a rock fan was very in tune with mine. He liked stuff that was powerful. He didn't like stuff necessarily that was pretty. A lot of engineers at the time were into stuff that was like classy and smooth and slick. Like, you know, Andy Pratt and Steely Dan and, right. uh, you know, you know, records that had obviously been slaved over meticulously and where every sound was kind of like moved with a, a pair of forceps into its <laughs> final location and then and then burnished in place. You yeah. Know? And, and 
Ian liked records like, you know, Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath and Cheap Trick and, you know, the hardcore punk bands where, yeah. like, they, they had a mania about them and the, the mania comes across as opposed to it being necessarily, like... Controlled. Yeah. As a, as a, yeah. It didn't fit, like, an aesthetic archetype. It was just... You could tell that something hellish was happening in the studio, <laughs> you know? And yeah. he, like, he loved all the, like... Like the nerdy prog stuff, you know, like yeah. sidelong opuses with a lot of like bongos and shit like that. Like he was into all that. He was really into like his favorite band was this band Guru Guru, you know, and yeah. they they were very jammy, very psychedelic, you know. <laughs> and he fantasized about having like a jammy psychedelic band of his own where yeah. he could play bass and just get high and play bass. I mean, play a bass riff <laughs> for an hour, that kind of shit, you know. And were you still working? Weren't you doing like graphic design work at the time? I was working at a photo retouching at, right. a, at a company that did photographic imagery, called right. color image. Like they would do like big display transparencies. That like you go to the airport, right. you see like a there's a, a dude talking on a cell phone with you. You know, yeah, Unexcom, we're <laughs> there. You know, yeah. like that kind of shit. I know you got a, a journalism degree. Yeah, and then how did you end up working in? in uh, Retouch type work and stuff. My minor at Northwestern was in painting. I was always interested in graphic design and graphic arts and photography. And I saw an ad <laughs> that this this company needed a photograph yeah. retouch artist and, the, and who someone who could do photo composition and photo montage. And I was familiar with pretty much all of that stuff. I kind of bullshitted my way into the job. <laughs> like, I didn't really know how to do... Like, yeah. they'd say, have you ever done E6 transparency re retouching? And I'm like, sure, shit, yeah, <laughs> lots of it, you know? <laughs> have, have you ever done, uh, you know, Cotolith masking for photo composition on color negative film? Yeah, yeah shit, yeah. I, yeah. I do it all the time, you know? I just, I kind of bullshitted my yeah. way into the job. That was kind of my habit at the time. Was like I, when I needed to get a job, I would just say whatever it took to get the person to hire me, yeah. and then I would figure it out once I got there. And Jump in, yeah. yeah. And the engineers have the same exact story. You know, can you run this session tomorrow? Sure, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how. I mean, I, I have a feeling that like I know this is true for recording. Yeah. But I think it might be true for most things is that pretty much everybody is faking it. Like pretty much everybody <laughs> is not as good as you think they are at it. And they're they're so like pretty much everybody is like constantly in, like afraid that they're going to be found out as a fraud. Yeah. Like so like and so, like almost all decisions are made based on the efficacy of the situation concluding without you being found out as a fraud. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I know you said a similar thing at one of the tape-off cons about, like, you know, the start of us. There's not one record or session that kind of starts where you don't feel like they're going to find me out yeah. or, or it's like, I'm going to fail yeah, majestically exactly. here. <laughs> it's like, now I've been doing it for long enough. I've been making yeah. records for long enough that basically nothing surprises me at this point. Yeah. Like, there's no situation that could come <laughs> up in a studio where I would be baffled. I might, yeah. I might not necessarily get it right the first time but i'll have it i'll have an approach i'll have a way of getting through the problem right yeah that wasn't true when i first started and <laughs> i was lucky in that my peers were other punk rockers in who would informally put up with all kinds of nonsense and so i, I like if shit went bad it wouldn't be that big of a deal like Hang when on. you when you do the punch in and arm all the tracks the arm tracks are all yeah. Yeah. i've done that i did that once <laughs> me too yeah that's scary when you realize that you've just ruined an entire set an entire song like holy shit i just did that that was me i just fucked up your whole record right yeah. there you know i find it interesting that you that you were working in 
and working in, especially in the graphic design field now and, and photo retouch, you know that no one ever does it in the manner that you did it back then. Yeah. Of negatives and retouch, you know, it's all done in the computer. No, everything's on a computer now. And you... It's another <laughs> another another lost yeah. like a, another skill of mine that's totally dead end and, and useless. Yeah, it's, you, know. It's, you know, you'd have to go learn how to do it on a computer if you went into that field again. Yeah, if 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 I go Can deaf, if, if shit goes bad and I go deaf, then you know I can't. I no longer have a safety net. <laughs> One yeah. thing that I find really interesting, Steve, is 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 a sense of community. You know, because you you mention a lot of like like minded musicians coming yeah. and trusting you to work with you and being part of something. It's something that Ian was part of before that. Yeah. You know. I mean, it's like any decent music scene is like that. Like, if you go someplace and they have a solid music scene, then there's going to be a network of people that all know each other and all help each other out. There'll be like little sort of fraternities of bands that do shit together. Like, they play a lot of shows together. They share a practice space. They have, you know, they swap girlfriends back and forth, shit like that. <laughs> like, the, the, that will be going on in anywhere where there's a decent music scene. Like, the reason that New York sucks as a place for music is that all the bands are kind of see themselves as in competition with each other. Right. And every now and again, every now and again, there's an interesting band that, that comes out of there. Every now and again, there's an interesting musician that makes it through that gauntlet. But as a place to be in a band, uh, it totally sucks because there's very little cooperation, very little collaboration. Right. You know, they're in the jazz bow scene. There's a kind of a similar thing there that that there is here and in a lot of places where everybody's kind of trying to get as much stage time as possible, and so the, they tend to like reciprocally like set each other up for gigs and stuff. But even that seems kind of Machiavellian to me. I mean, even that seems like it's kind of a manipulative process. It doesn't seem like totally organic. Yeah. Whereas in places like Chicago or Louisville or Minneapolis or any of the Midwestern cities where there was a really strong underground scene at the time, like an awful lot of the bands worked arm in arm together. Like you would see the effigies playing shows with Naked Ray Gun, playing shows with Big Black, playing shows with Savage Beliefs, playing shows with, you know, Rights of the Accused or whatever. Like they weren't necessarily the same kind of music or even necessarily close friends. Yeah. But it was a kind of a, a, a spectrum of people who were all working on, on a, the project and the project having an, an awesome music scene, right? Yeah. And the same, same was true in Minneapolis. Like, the, you'd have Soul Asylum and The Replacements and Husker Du and Man Sized Action and Rifle Sport mm -hmm. all playing shows together and, and not necessarily even relating to each other on a musical level, but they were all comrades, yeah. you know? And there always seems to be a... a studio or studios that are sort of involved in that same nexus whenever there's a group of people that get together like that there there almost always pops up a person or a place where people yeah. can go and one guy does a session there and has a good time word of mouth the next band will yeah. go there and word of mouth if they have a good time the next band will go there so you end up having places like inner ear in dc or there's a place called hennepin in minneapolis that that was kind of that as an inst as a studio but they were it was more of a commercial enterprise and you ended up having a couple of individual people like Brian Paulson ended up being like the go-to guy in Minneapolis certainly and you know there was Ian Burgess in Chicago and uh, it just makes a difference having somebody who's sympathetic who's feels like he's one of the the, the crew yeah. and sort of fits into the spectrum of, of personalities like and there was almost always a guitar shop that everybody would go to and get their shit fixed at. And there was, True, all, you right? know, there was all of those things are like yeah. whatever you need to be in to have a band. If you have a musical, if you have like a cooperative music community, you really only need one of any of those. You yeah. really only need one studio or one recording engineer or one <laughs> guitar shop or 
you know, one place to print your flyers. You really only need one of any of those places, yeah. and everybody can use them. And then that sort of cements the community in a way, like everybody ends up collaborating and doing things in a similar way. You see electrical as like a continuation of, of things like that? Well, by the time that electrical opened, there were many, many options yeah. for places, and the music scene had been diversified enough that, and enough outside money had come in that I don't think that the sense of identity with a place yeah. was as strong. Yeah. Um, by the 90s, there were profiteers trying to make a living off of the music scene who weren't personally involved in the music scene. That wasn't the case in the 80s. You yeah. were either part of it or you weren't part of it. And the in the 90s, there were people who were not part of it but were trying to siphon money out of it. Yeah. And one of the mechanisms of that was like people were trying to build studios or make a studio relationship foster with a record label somehow that would be profitable to them. In the end, that's what it boils down to. They just yeah. they, they wanted to make a, make a living off of it. Yeah. Right? I, I mean, we see ourselves as being part of that continuum, mm -hmm. a co collaborative and cooperative continuum, but there are elements of competition that entered into it in the 90s that were never there before. In Madison, Wisconsin, Butch Vig had a studio called Smart Studios, and Touch and Go had a lot of bands that would record at Smart. Like, right. they, the Kildos are recorded there, Decroitzen recorded there, Laughing Hyenas recorded there. Like, yeah. And by the same token, like, I did a lot of recording for a lot of bands that came out on Touch and Go. I never felt a direct competition with Butch Vig and right. with Smart Studios. I felt like we were both on the same team, you know. Yeah. I had, it was, a, there was a level of, there was some friendly competition, like, with, for very specific gigs where very specific sessions, like, a band would want to do a session there and then do a session with me and... I'd be like, well, ours is better, right? You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I mean, but th that's just, yeah. that, I mean, that's just like a, you know, a, one of the weaker elements of my personality expressing <laughs> itself. But, um, like, it, I always felt like, I always had great admiration for Butch and the way he did things at, at Smart. Like, he made these awesome records, like these Killdozer records that just sounded like nothing else and were they were huge and, right. and unholy. And, and, and apparently he did it you know, quickly, cheaply, and easily. He yeah. did the, he did those records for the appliances, and those appliances records are fantastic. Yeah. You know, so I have seen the a change in the sort of the the social personality of the of the scene yeah. to the extent that now I think some people feel like we're in competition with them or some other other studios that we're not part of the of the not as integrated into the music scene yeah. may feel like they were competing with us. I'm trying to make this place a resource like that. My yeah. my number one goal in building the place was not just so that I could have a place to work myself. I wanted to have a resource available to the musical community in Chicago mm -hmm. so that bands wouldn't have to work in a crappy studio. Like, right. The desire was that, that this place would be so good and so cheap that you'd have to be an idiot to make a record elsewhere. Like That was, that was yeah. the desire, right? <laughs> and that wasn't a selfish consideration. It was like, wouldn't it be great if we had a thing set up in Chicago that was so good, that was so awesome and so easy to get into and so such a great working environment that basically nobody would ever have to suffer. Like it would right. always be, everybody would always get a good record. Everybody would always, you know, come in under budget. Everybody would always have a good time, <laughs> you know. So. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you certainly know how hard it is to make money just at the, running a recording studio. Yeah, it's impossible. You know? I mean, I, I feel like I'm flustered by it. 15 years in myself, yeah. you know. As a business enterprise yeah. right now, running a recording studio is almost guaranteed to be a losing proposition yeah. unless you have a very specific set of circumstances that are in confluence to make your life easy. 
Yeah. Like, if you are in a place that has an active music scene, but by sheer accident doesn't have a recording facility, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, if you're in a town, like a college town, where there are a lot of bands that are active, but nobody has set up roots and built a recording studio to serve that musical community, yeah. and you're the guy that does it, well, then you can probably make a living. Yeah. Uh, if you are bequeathed a building or property so that you don't have to spend any money <laughs> on real estate, yeah. if you have, by virtue of your personal endeavors, collected enough equipment to build a studio that is not <laughs> beholden to anybody else, yeah, so yeah. you can just say, well, I'll take my personal studio and open it to other people. Yeah. Then you can maybe make a living at it. Yeah. But if you had to start from scratch, buy a building, build a studio in it, outfit that, that studio, yeah. staff your studio, pay for the operation and maintenance of that studio, and making a make a living off of it, forget it. The, that's impossible now. Those yeah. days are over, you know. Did you ever consider just becoming a guy that maybe has a small thing to work at at home but spends most of your time in other places, like well, freelance, basically? the inefficiency of that is what really bothered me. I, yeah. I considered it, yeah. but the inefficiency of it really bothered me. Like, if I bring a band to an, an outside studio and they spend $1,000 on their session, I get a couple hundred of it, and the studio gets eight or, you know, yeah. gets seven or 800 <laughs> of it, right? That right there, to me, seems like some kind of a mistake. Like, I'm the one that's rooting for this band. I'm the one that's yeah. doing the legwork of putting the session together. I'm the one that is actually running the session and making the record for them. Yeah. But I get a tiny fraction of the money. Either the band should get to keep that money or I should get it. Yeah. Is, the, is the way I looked at it, right? So if we did a session at my house, yeah. well, then the band gets to keep the lion's share of the money because right. the, the sessions at the house were super cheap. Yeah. But if we have to go someplace else, it's kind of felt like all these bands were just burning this money. Like they were, they, they were giving this money to someone who was taking it out of the music com musical community and wasn't using it to reinvest, wasn't using it as, mm -hmm. to like make life easier for anybody. They were just skimming profit. Right. So it seemed like it would be viable to build a studio that would then be reinvesting that extra money that uh, that you know the 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 eighty yeah. percent that I wasn't getting that yeah. money would get reinvested into the musical community right. some way or another. I mean, in, in many ways, you're doing that here. You've got we, you're, yeah, you're, but I mean, the the difference being yeah. that because of the change in musical in recording technology, you know, sessions now are much less expensive than they were ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, um, which is a like a, a crazy irony if you think about it in 1978 or 79 you could buy a new car for five thousand dollars yeah you know and uh, but a day in the studio would cost you two grand like a lockout yeah. day in a 24 track studio with a pro engineer and everything would cost you two grand yeah. right and now <laughs> you're going to spend 30 grand on an on a, even a shitty car right and a day in the studio is 800 bucks right 1200 bucks you know yeah it's kind of weird it's kind of insane <laughs> things haven't gotten cheaper outside the recording studio they've only gotten cheaper inside the recording studio at the same time the tape decks have been the price of a tape deck and even a lot of consoles has dropped yeah Certain but consoles, in the you know. neotech still makes consoles right. mike stoika still makes consoles as neotechs and if you bought a new elite console from him it would still cost you a hundred grand That's true. you it's know it's not going to be cheap um the multi-tracks that we have 
when you find one that's inexpensive, the reason it's inexpensive is because it's busted and yeah. it, and you can't make a record on it. Yeah. So after you go through the effort of fixing it to the point where you can make a record on it, you've probably spent twenty grand, thirty grand on it. You know. So there are certain line items that are less expensive. Yeah. But functional working pieces of studio equipment are not less expensive right. than they were. And a Neumann U forty seven in good shape is still going to set you back ten grand. Yeah, There's just no way around it. And I say ten grand. I haven't looked at one in in ten years, so I don't even know. They might be twenty grand now. Who knows? I don't want to know. Yeah. If Vincent Gallo got his hand on enough of them, hands on enough of them, then they're probably twenty grand. Or Blackbird. Yeah. Blackbird bought them all. Yeah. <laughs> That place is unreal. I went and checked it out last oh. year. I went, wow. <laughs> yeah, they literally have it all. They have it's... everything. I met up with George Massenberg there for some yeah. some Nashville thing. I can't remember what it was. And he's like, oh, you should take a look at their mic collection. they got a pretty good mic collection. And I'm like, and instantly, I'm like, oh, yeah. oh, I, yeah, you can't <laughs> tell me from mic collection. Yeah. Oh, I've got I have mics. You, I, I'm an old, I'm an old hand at this. You're not going to impress me with your fucking mic collection. Yeah. And then I, then they start. The guy starts opening drawer after drawer after drawer and cabinet after cabinet after cabinet. It's just like, holy fuck! You have everything. You know, yeah. like they, st- there's still Orson Welles spit on some of them. You yeah. know, it's <laughs> like, like if someone is willing to go through to that effort to ex- assemble that kind of a collection, yeah. they're not doing it functionally. Like they're not yeah. doing it because they need all of those microphones to make right. records. They're they're doing it for some other reason. It's a it's a it's some kind of an investment, some kind of a pathology, some kind of a like. <laughs> I think there's a little pathology there. Yeah, I think microphones are something I want to talk to you about too because you've amassed a fairly decent collection. Right. And my question for you: How did you build up the knowledge on some of that? Like, you sit and check things out. Yeah, and- a lot of it was. Every time I would go to another studio, if there was a microphone I was unfamiliar with, I would stick it up somewhere just to listen to what it sounded like. Yeah. And, um, or if uh, there's a lot of local lore in studios, like some, some guy will say, oh man, that mic is great on snare drum. You wouldn't think so, but that mic is great on snare drum. Mm-hmm. So we'll try it out on snare drum, see what it yeah. sounds like, you know? Or somebody will say, like, oh yeah, we had this guy in here, he had this really fantastic sounding Marshall amp. Everything sounded like crap. We couldn't, couldn't, and then I put this microphone up and it sounded great. Right. I'm like, okay, well, I'll try that out. You know? yeah. It's like it's like when you're cooking, you, you know, you have a sense memory of eating a certain thing or the flavor of a certain yeah. thing or the texture of a certain thing. And so if you're thinking, well, how, like if you're trying to come up with a way to use an, an ingredient that you're unfamiliar with, like you can figure out a way to pair that with something that you are familiar with in a way that you think will work. And that, yeah. that's, it's basically the same process. Yeah. Like you're, you have a sense memory of something and you remember something working well in a certain situation. So when you find an analog to that situation, you have a, 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 a means of at yeah. least fi- starting to experiment. You know, you don't necessarily get it right every time. <laughs> this band, The Mentally Ill, came in to record. They recorded an, an album. This is like 25 years after or 30 years after they quit playing together. They mm-hmm. decided to reinvigorate the band and record an album. Yeah. One of the things that they wanted to record was the the bass player had a one of those barber's head massagers. It's like a, a vi- it's called a stimulax. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. put it on your hand. You strap it to your yeah. hand, and then you give the guy a scalp massage with the stimulax. <laughs> right? But he had a metal end table, like a router table that he had from, from his shop, mm-hmm. and he would put the stimulax on it, and it would skate around on the top like one of those NFL football games, right? <laughs> right, right. But and it made the most horrific noise, just this like brrr, like yeah. metal rattling, like things shaking loose kind of noise, right? <laughs> and so I had to figure out how to record that. 
And yeah. the closest analog, really, was Bob Burt's metal percussion from Pussy Galore. Mm-hmm. And I remembered mm-hmm. using small diaphragm condenser mics <laughs> on that, and it sounding good. So I set up small right. diaphragm condenser mics on the on the metal table, and it sounded great. It sounded fine, you know. Something you can get those fast transients. Yeah, so yeah, something sound. with a wide spectrum, yeah. real fast response, blah blah blah. Yeah. You know? So it, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You don't necessarily yeah. know, like if somebody's, you know, I'm going to be blowing this flute into this bucket of water, like. I don't really know what that <laughs> will qualify as. But when you listen to it, you'll hear, like, oh, it's got a range of sort of vocal tones, and there's a yeah. mildly per- bassy, percussive, blooping sound of the water bubbling. <laughs> so, you know, so you'll have, a, you'll have a target to shoot at, at least. I try not to hang on to stuff that doesn't get used, because it, then it's just money sitting in a drawer somewhere, yeah. you know. You know, put on eBay and put the word Beatles next to it. Wait, wait, wait for the sale. Greg was into a thing for a while. Like whenever we'd have some piece of junk crap laying around, yeah. like some crap that we didn't want to get rid of, Greg would have me autograph it and write the word Nirvana <laughs> on it and autograph it, and then we try to sell it on eBay. We had a couple some bent tape flanges. Oh we had a cardboard box. You're kidding? Yeah, it didn't it didn't work out too well. Uh. What my favorite one though was there was um, a used uh, an exhausted. Um, magic marker yeah <laughs> and he had me take a sharpie and and autograph it yeah and write nirvana on it yeah and so then he put the exhausted magic marker with my autograph and the word nirvana on it on ebay and when it finally sold there were two bidders greg's <laughs> girlfriend and the girlfriend of the guy that worked with soli in the office with nirvana in the oh, office right, yeah. a guy named russ arbuthnot <laughs> uh, okay this isn't really working yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the whole autograph it, put it on eBay thing hasn't really panned out. Damn, could have had a whole side career. I actually have a, I have actually have a funny anecdote from the, you know, like the things associated with the Beatles have a, a premium attached to sure, them. Like yeah. a U forty seven microphones yeah. are more expensive because they're pictures of John Lennon singing. Oh, yeah. He was actually singing into U forty eights, and if anybody knew that, then U forty eights would go through the roof. But regardless, <laughs> yeah. so anything associated with the Beatles has a premium attached to it. I actually have an inverse Midas uh, effect on things. I have a Midas Brown effect on things, <laughs> where anything I touch turns to shit. Like, uh, I went broke a few years ago after we'd started. We we built the studio and we were kind of underway, but we went through a slump and and uh, I went I went broke and I had to sell a bunch of guitars. There was a guy. Uh, the uh, Greg Kershevsky at the Rock House in Milwaukee was going to sell those guitars for me because he was sort of tied into the collector's market. At the time, there was sort of a going price for various items, and I was selling a couple of Travis Bean guitars, and the going price for the Travis Bean guitars was like around $1,500, $2,000. And in all of them, he had listed, you know, these are owned by Steve Albini, you know, very good condition, owned by Steve Albini. He didn't get a single offer on one of those guitars when he listed them that way. And then he just listed it as a random, just Travis Bean, yeah. and he sold a couple of them, like, straight away. <laughs> like, it's actually worth less. Whoops. If I'm associated yeah. with it, it's actually worth less than it would be if it was just, like, found in a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah, I'm all right, I'm all right you with You don't cry yourself to sleep about it. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, at one point we haven't touched on in your career is the outside jobs, going uh-huh. to other studios and working and... When, when was the first time that you got a situation like that that was sort of more, well, more uh, prominent, I guess would be the, the word? The first session that I did for a band that I had never met mm-hmm. was the Pixies' Surfer yeah. Rose album. Right. Um, 
how did that come about? Did they just found your name on other records or something? Um, they, at the time, they had a very strong-willed manager who had convinced them that they should do whatever their English record label said. And their English <laughs> record label was 4AD. It was run by a guy named Ivo Watts Russell. Right. And Ivo was familiar with Big Black, and he thought... He, w he was fond of the Pixies, but he thought it would be a, a good idea to have them work with me because at the time I had a little bit of cachet in the British press, probably. And also, I think he probably thought that their aesthetic and my aesthetic were not miles apart. Yeah. During the making of that record, I felt like I was guinea-pigging them a little bit, <laughs> if I may invent a verb. <laughs> um, like, there was stuff that I wanted to try that I didn't really have a venue to try out, so I and sort of made them the guinea pig. One of them was like, on that Slint record that I'd done, they had had a thing. They didn't want to have any gaps between their songs. They wanted mm -hmm. to have all the all the songs tied together with like either sound effects or conversation or ambient noises or whatever. They just wanted to have everything sort of moving along all the time. Yeah. So I kind of imposed that on the Pixies as well. Like their their record, all the songs sort of start in time with another one to the one to the next or there are like little sound effects things that link with talking together, talking bits yeah. and I feel a little bit self-conscious about that now because I know that that's not something that they would have come up with mm -hmm. and I feel like I externally applied that to their band and now they have to answer for it you know like right. all that little chit chat stuff shit on their record <laughs> they weren't like super talkative people they weren't chatty people and now they have this thing that's on their record, this representation of them that kind of strikes me as slightly false. And they, they've had to live up to it. You know, yeah. like they've had to have people ask them about that at every interview. <laughs> and I kind of feel self-conscious about that. I feel like that was a little bit out of, out of line for, on my part. One of my favorite things on that record is the, the Kim's vocal, backing vocals on Where Is My Mind. The, uh -huh. the beginning with the reverb and the vocal. Uh -huh. Was that something you kind of just stumble on mix wise or? yeah they had a PCM 70 there and there's a setting on the PCM 70 called infinite reverb and I played around with that for a while and I liked the idea of having Kim's who who carry on and that would be the bridge between that song right. and the next song right well what are the kind of jobs I mean you ended up doing a page plant record and yeah um, I did a very few of the sessions that I've done have have bummed me out in any yeah. way um there were there were a, there were a few minor disappointments, but like basically, it seems like I got along with everybody I did a record with, yeah. and the results were at least okay. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, I don't I don't really have that many complaints. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a uh, you've got a a public persona of, of uh, speaking your mind. I guess would be a good way to put it. Okay, and. Uh, <laughs> And story checks out. Yeah, story checks out. <laughs> but you know, I, I find it real interesting. People people look uh, towards you sometimes for sort of a cantankerous, uh, abrasive uh, comments or something. Yet, and I mean, I think but, there's a, some strange perceptions about you. A lot of that comes from, for years, the music business, the record business, was an offshoot of old school show business. Yeah, and the people doing the talking and the people like writing about it and the people doing the promotion and hyping and all that sort of stuff weren't involved in the music. They were external to it and they lived in the mythology of it, right? Yeah. So there was a very strong incentive to create and extend mythology, like have outsized personas, like have people with, you know, <laughs> insane backstories and, you know, yeah. like tales of great abandon and indulgence and stuff like that. 
And even when that stuff lost its cachet within the music community, musical community, there were still people of the old guard that thought that's the way music should be presented. Like, right. you still see it. Like, there's this radio program, Sound Opinions, mm-hmm. right? Two working music journalists, not idiots, but yeah. they still play into the same thing. Like, they, they talk about talk about bands and musicians as though they're space aliens, as though the <laughs> things that they do are not normal, everyday things. And, you know, that kind of thing really, that, that kind of thing bothers me. Yeah. But it, I also understand that everybody is subject to it. It's not me. I'm not special, you know. <laughs> I have, I'm sure I have an impression of, say, Jack White, whom I've never met. Right. Right. I know by reputation from before he got famous that he was a very helpful person in the garage community. Like, he helped a lot of bands out. He did a lot of, you know, he put put shows on. He did helped out in recording. He, you know, he was like a... He's a good, a solid dude, yeah, right? Right. Right. The public persona that's been developed for him since then, completely alien to that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like and he... I know for a fact that my impression of him has been influenced by that public persona that was right. created by people that were not him. You know, right. all the shit that he was responsible for early on, like all the shit that he actually did yeah. by being a helpful guy still in a scene doing. and is still doing, yeah. all the shit that he is responsible for. You know, he gets 100% marks on, right? Yeah, yeah. The shit that that came in, that flew in through the window from some asshole babbling in the parking lot, yeah. that he's not responsible for, and that's the part that's probably making me think he's weird, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and what's, what's gratifying to me is that, like, there are people who have these wild public images, you know? Yeah. Like, and when every now and again you stumble across one of them in some informal setting... And turns out they're totally normal, totally fine people. They're like the Alice kind Cooper. of yeah, or Iggy Pop. Like yeah, yeah, like being on the phone with Iggy Pop and talking about their session was exactly the same as being on the phone with Tim Midget and talking about a bottomless pit session. Or when he's in the studio, yeah. yes, he's a big bold person personality, but he's not a lunatic. You know, he's not. It's not job to do exactly. Yeah. And and uh, so I I kind of don't give a shit what other people think about me. Like, on, yeah. on on one level, that's part of their experience of music is that they get to form these opinions of other people and ha- harbor these fantastic notions of them. Yeah. Well, that's part of my experience <laughs> with music is these fantastic stories, right? Yeah. You know, these fantastic things. So I don't want to shortchange anybody. I don't want to disabuse anybody of a notion that might be giving them some quiet pleasure, thinking yeah. that I'm an asshole. Like just thinking that I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in a room somewhere, being bitter and mean Stewing. about something. You know, yeah, like that's probably satisfying to somebody to think that, and I don't want to take that from him. You know, you know, you're welcome to it. You know, I mean, part of the part of the reason I think there's that perception is that you've been rather outspoken. You know, you'll say things like your your thoughts regarding producing and not yeah. producing a record. Or and I, and I the general that. abusiveness, abusive nature of the relationship between a band and its record label. Oh you know? yeah, like absolutely. The, yeah. And in in a lot of cases, all of that is just a reflection of my exposure to it. Right. You know, like if I have an opinion about something, there's a chance that it's an ignorant opinion. In the case of, for example, <laughs> you know, Jack White and his <laughs> carriage made out of a giant pumpkin or yeah. whatever. You know, like I, exactly. I don't. That's a could be a mistaken notion, but I might also have some direct experience with it. And if I have direct experience with it, I tend to be a lot more convinced of yeah. what I'm of what I'm saying. Like I said, there's a, a big part of the music scene 
that is predicated on fan- fantasy. On, yeah. on, but most of the time, those fantasies are fed to and made up by people who are not directly involved in making records every day, yeah. not, not involved in the music scene. I really don't feel like I, I have to apologize for having an opinion about something that's a direct experience of mine. Right. You know? I'm not asking for it. No, I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, so it's, it seems it's, like people yeah. who live in the fantasy realm, people who live in the realm of publicity and fantasy and invented yeah. received wisdom, right? One of the bits of received wisdom is that I'm cranky and cantankerous <laughs> and outspoken against the industry. Of course. I, I would wager that the majority of the people who say that about me probably couldn't name a single position that I hold <laughs> with any certainty. Like, a posi- right. the position, uh, I'll, I'll state a position that I do hold, which yeah. is that the lion's share of the of the reward for making an awesome record ought to go to the band that made it. Yeah, That seems like a perfectly yeah. reasonable position. That is a position that I hold, right? right. If you asked some journalist who, form, who had an opinion about me that I was cantankerous and, and yeah, noisy yeah. or whatever... My suspicion is that they would not articulate that as a position of mine. Right. You know, they would they would position it as an as an oppositional position like <laughs> well he's against the major labels. Right, right. You know, as Turn opposed to, as opposed to me having an affirmative position which is that I feel like the people who are responsible for making and delivering their art to the world should be the ones who reap the majority of the benefit of it. Yeah. That's that seems like a more like a pretty fairly obvious thing, you know. Yeah. There are a lot of secondary discussions we can have about who actually gets the money and who shouldn't. Yeah. But the the principal position is that if you come up with something and you send it out into the world by rights, you should be getting the lion's share of the reward of it. One of the more uh, obviously more well known records was the Nirvana record. Uh-huh. What's what's your take on the the remix situation that happened on that? And that was a big. That whole record flare up disaster. Everything about that record got blown out of proportion. Yeah, like that band went into the studio with me to make the record on their own nickel. Right, the record company wasn't involved. That obviously made the record company nervous. They heard the results. The results were kind of had an abrasive element that bothered them. So they waged a kind of a publicity campaign to try to shame the band into doing the record again. Right. Jesus it was pretty creepy, pretty weird. It sounds like I'm saying something that's a paranoid raving. <laughs> I was getting phone calls from journalists saying, I just got off the phone with Gary Gersh. He said you ruined the Nirvana album and they can't release it. Right? Shit like that's the level of discourse. That's the level of rhetoric that they were using to try to... That's defamation of character. I well, I don't care about yeah. that. <laughs> I don't care about any of that. What What matters to me was that the record label didn't have the balls to say to the band... You can't put your record out because we decided that we don't like it. What they did was they tried to use all these creepy psychological means to back the band into a corner so that the band would then ask to do it again, right? It was really grotesque. I have no respect for anybody involved, any any of the record company people involved that did it. They're all shoveling shit for a living now anyway. I don't care. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, where the, are they now? The way the whole thing panned out, I, I actually, you know, I survived. I did OK. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just I feel terrible that the band had to go through that bullshit yeah. and that they had to have their their situation with their record label 
aired so publicly. I thought that was really embarrassing. And it was at a time when Kurt was really vulnerable and he went back on dope and he ended up being dead. You know, like the whole thing, like everything about that was ugly. And I, I, I don't see any way that I could have gotten out of it. I, I was chosen as the scapegoat by the record label. The band were obviously concerned. They didn't want to cause a fracas. They didn't want to like get into a fight with their record label. They actually had some reservations about the record, like you know, any everybody has reservations about the record when you finish it. Yeah. So I don't want to belittle it. What yeah. it boils down to is the record in the store. If you go to the store now and buy a copy of that In Utero album, that's the record the band wanted you to hear. Yeah. Right. That's the record. Kurt Kurt spent a couple of days with Bob Ludwig mastering that record. He had a bunch of little adjustments that he wanted to make. Bob Ludwig made all those little adjustments. In the end, he was content with it. I'm totally content with that. As a my end of it, I th- feel like I held up my end. Yeah. I did a good job with them. They, they, you know, we got the record done quickly. Uh, everybody was happy with it when we left. Shit changed after we left. I'm I'm okay with it. I don't have any any qualms with it. Yeah. Kurt asked me if I would be willing to try to remix some of the stuff. This was after all the back and forth with the record label. Yeah. And he came clean to me about the way the record label had confronted him eventually. And he said, well, yeah, we do kind of want to remix a couple of songs. And I said, okay, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And he said, well, if we had time, I'd, I would just do, I would remix everything. And that to me sounded like a kind of a frustrated, kind of a desperate position. It didn't sound like a considered position. Yeah, It just sounded like... He was throwing his hands up in the air. So I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll listen to it again. And if I feel like I can do better on anything, then I'd be willing to give it another shot. Otherwise, you have my blessings. Do whatever you want. So I listened to the, I had a copy of the master. I had a half inch copy of the master and I listened to it. And I felt like we had wrung the sponge on all of those songs. Like there wasn't, like I really didn't feel like I could do a better job. Yeah. Little tiny adjustments in the levels. Sure, you could make those little tiny adjustments, but then you're rolling the dice on the other 23 channels. Like, you know, and we, we, I felt like we got a really good result. Yeah. Yeah. And I basically didn't want to get involved in a clusterfuck of, in a spiral of recrimination and remixes and, and, you know, version 2A with the coda from 3B with the vocal up a half a dB, you know, with the alternate acoustic intro from take nine. You know, like, I didn't want to get into a a fuck shop. Yeah. uh, Like a fuck show like that. I I had the suspicion that it would become a fuck show like that as soon as they, like, ceded any control of the process to the record label, that the record label was just going to, like, dive in. And and I saw the writing on the wall, like, okay, this is going to get weird. And I just, and I bowed out at that point. They did remix a couple of songs. They added a vocal harmony to one. I don't remember. I think they changed the string arrangement on another one. I have no qualms with that. It's it's their record. They can do whatever they want. And and in the end, the record in the store is the record that Kurt wanted everybody to hear. And I'm totally 100% comfortable with that. Right. It goes back to the service industry aspect. You know, you do your job and you do the best you can. It's a little bit of a shame that we weren't able to, like, march out of that studio after 12 days with the, the finished rec- finished yeah. final version of the record under our arms and yeah. say, you know, fuck all y'all, we did it, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a, 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 it's a slight disappointment that that isn't the way it came about. Yeah. But 
99% of the session was conducted under that basis, and I'm totally happy with the the job I did, and I felt like my relationship with them survived all the bullshit that was going on around it, and, you know... I didn't think I didn't think that grown adults would behave the way the people at Geffen behave, though. (laughs) That actually was a bit of a bafflement to me that that people people who were potty trained would behave like that really surprised me. (laughs) And like I said, the only satisfaction I get out of it at this point is that like is that they're all insurance salesmen or something now. And and I'm (laughs) most likely I still make records every day. So, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um. One thing we haven't touched on was always the hot topic for you at tape op cons, and we would call. We finally started calling it. Like, can we avoid the Albini baiting? Um, but the the sort of production stance, you know, <laughs> I don't produce stance, and I don't even know if I want to even have you reiterate the same goddamn thing. Well, what it boils but, down to is, I feel like in the same for the same reason that I feel like the band should be the recipient of the lion's share of the proceeds of their record. I feel like the band should be deferred to in any creative decision in the studio. The band should be responsible for making their record in, in as much like to as much of a degree as is possible under every Mm -hmm. circumstance. Yeah. Like if the band has an idea of how they want their record to sound, that's how it should sound. You know, if a band walks in the, the front door of the studio with a completely formed aesthetic, which is a function of the people that are playing and how they play and the equipment they use and the style of their music and the tempo and the tempos that they play with and how proficient they are at their instruments and all these other things. That is a, those, all of those things are components of the identity of the band. Right. They walk in the front door with a, a, a formed identity. The band has an identity. It is not my business to start deconstructing that identity as right. the first order of business. Like, the the very first thing I do with a band should not be to disassemble them and make them not themselves anymore. Yeah. The first thing that I should do is try to come to grips with what they are when they walk in the front door and figure out how to make the, a record out with them of that, you know? Right. But I, I, I know that it is an impulse on that part of a lot of producers and engineers that no matter who walks in the front door, they start breaking them down into component parts and start trying to fit them into their paradigm or their their methodology. And my reluctance to do that or my, my negative perspective on that comes from <clears throat> when my band or my friend's bands would go into one of these studios for hire in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. And the aesthetic... Within that studio, or the, or the culture within that studio, was to err on the side of making things tidy and polite and pretty. Mm-hmm. I knew that that did a disservice to the bands, my friends' bands, that were coming in there with these ugly, harsh punk bands. You know, yeah. I knew that that attitude, that that predisposition on the part of the of the engineer was doing them a disservice. And so I tried to avoid I tried to avoid that. Yeah. It's inevitable that I will have my own mannerisms and prejudices and that sort of stuff. That's inevitable. Yeah. But as much as possible, I try to make the record be a reflection of the band that walks in the door. Yeah. You know, and I, that just seems like a normal respectful thing to me. Well, it doesn't seem like it should be a controversial position. Right. But for some reason, <laughs> I, I think it's because 
a lot of people who do what I do, they, they want to justify their position somehow. They want to feel like they are responsible for the greatness of the records that they work on in some way. Yeah. They want to feel like they can claim authorship of, if not the record as a whole, certain elements of the record they want to claim authorship sure. of. And I, I understand that from a psychological standpoint, but I also feel like you need to fucking swallow that. You need to be a, a, a grown-up and swallow your pride and make the kind of record that walked in the front door and not try to turn everything into fucking Sergeant Pepper, you know? But I think the other thing that, that's interesting about someone getting riled up is that if someone doesn't want to work the way that you're describing, their choice is to not come in your front door. They sure. They work with someone else that's going to provide I, whatever they want to get from that person, you know? Yeah, but I also feel like yeah. uh, I also feel like when you're in a position that where someone is entrusting you with their life's work, yeah. their creative output, someone is laying themselves more naked than they have ever been and and spending hard-earned money on it that could otherwise have gone to uh, you know raising a child or a college education or something <laughs> right yeah there's a there is a responsibility there that an awful lot of people in the recording profession duck they duck that responsibility by saying it's all good you can do it that way if you want or I can do it my way I mean everybody can do it every way you know it, it's all good I don't believe that it's all good. I believe that some ways of doing things are problematic and destructive and inefficient and tend to to results that don't reflect the band. Right. So that's where the argumentative aspect of it comes in. Yeah. But I also feel like all of that comes from the basic fundamental perspective that the band has their shit together. Give respect the band enough to let them have their shit together when they walk in the door. Yeah. You know? And uh, I can understand why people who are like more from the hip hop school where the, the producer is sort of creating the totality of the record around a voice. Right. Like I understand how those people have a different perspective perspective on record production than I do because they're dealing with something different. But they're kind of half the artist at that point. I yeah. Mean, it's really, like the difference between a sushi chef and a French chef. Yeah. The sushi chef should not be expected how to make a perfect beurre blanc because they're not going to have to. <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you said to the sushi chef, no, you have to start your day by making all of your sauces, by making your, you know, making your beurre blanc and your uh, hollandaise and your uh, bechamel, you have yeah. to, you know, that's how you have to start every day. That You know, that's then, the way it's done. Then make sushi. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. it, it's a misapplication of the perspective yeah. to, to say that. So I don't think that everyone needs to think like I do. Right. I do think that if, <laughs> if <word>. you're... <laughs> I do think that if your job is making records with self-contained bands, yeah. then you won't make a mistake if you err on the side of not fucking with the band too much. Right. You know? And I also feel like if all these people, all these producers who have these grand notions about how to make records and how they know better than the band and all that sort of stuff, if they're that good, they should make their own fucking records, keep all the money, and be millionaires. <laughs> you know? Instead of like yeah. trying to do it vicariously by... You know, by sticking their arm up the ass of this other band and making a puppet out of this other band. You know, it's like that's that's just rude. Yeah. You know. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.